Chevy Equinox with forward collision alert, automatic emergency braking, and available all-wheel drive. It's my ultimate mobile device. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule a test drive. Chevy Equinox. It's your choice. Own it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain. Uh, our chance to step away from the TV world where I cover politics into the sort of radio podcast world where, well, often I'm doing entertainment, but this time, you know, it, it, it really is politics. It's politics and history come together, certainly to talk about the life of a man who has been uh, and always will be part of our culture moving forward. There's an amazing new biography that has just been written by Martin Luther King about Martin Luther King Jr. It is called King, A Life. Joining me is its author, Jonathan Eig, a Chicagoan, which is so good to see. John, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing great, Paul. It's good to talk to you. Hey, before we get into the book, a little bit for people who get so into this. First of all, the book is only about 600 pages long. so uh... But it reads like 590. It, it reads like 590, but I also, I read the whole thing. I mean, it really is engaging it. it. It, I mean, part of reading it is kind of like, I know it's all research, but it's like, boy, you, you got dialogue, you got whatever. How, how did you get into all this? We'll talk about it. But I do want to give a shout out to previous books that you've written. Um, because you and I first came in touch. I interviewed you years ago, uh, on WVON radio when we talked about, uh, your book, Ali, a life. And uh, you've, you've been working with uh, PBS and there's a series on Muhammad Ali. This seems to be, is it, now? I know your first book was about Lou Gehrig, Luckiest Man, The Life and Death of Lou Gehrig. It was not called Gehrig a Life. So I'm curious, did you sort of, what, is this a life, a series thing now or what's? <laughs> it could be. I like the idea. Uh, what I wanted to do with Ali was when I called it Ali a Life, it's just kind of like put my my seal on this and say, this is the book. This is the one you need. I don't want to call it anything cute. I don't want to call it the greatest or float like a butterfly, sing like a bee. I just want to say, if you really want to know the Ali story, you come here. This is, let's just keep it simple. It's called Ali, a life. And same idea with King. There have been many books about King. Um, many of them have biblical titles, a wonderful book called Bearing the Cross, Let the Trumpet Sound. And I just wanted to say, this is a this is the biggest, best, simplest uh, approach. You want to learn about King, come read this book. It's called King. I'm just trying to keep it simple. I love that. Okay. Which also means that, yeah, when we're looking for a definitive biography of somebody, as long as it's got the word a life, you wrote it and it's the one. That's what I'm going for. And All right. I'm we'll gonna see wait. if I do it again for the next one. The next one's going to well, be I'm hoping called the next one's uh, called... a life. Yeah. Thank you. I was going to say that and you said it first. <laughs> I love it. Fortunately, I'm still around. So it'll have to be listed a life in progress. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Something like that. Um, once I said, you are a Chicagoan. It's also interesting too that um, Ali and um, and King they b- both have Chicago roots. Roots. Does that have anything to do with your picking anybody? Um, not really, but it certainly helps when you're doing the research. If some of it took place nearby, and you can hop in the car or hop on the L instead of having to fly yeah. to the town to do your research. And and you know, Ali lived in Chicago for quite a while. King lived here briefly, but only like a few days a week in 1966 when he was trying to call attention to the segregated housing conditions and the slum housing conditions in which so many people were living. Uh, he moved here uh, to Lawndale and um, stayed for a while enough time to really make a point. But um, that was a you know an important chapter in my book. But most of the most of the book takes place in the South, in you know Atlanta, Birmingham, Montgomery, Selma, right. those places that we associate King with. 
Indeed, we'll talk about a Chicago days. I've got a million questions to ask you. We'll see how much we can get through. People may have seen or should see uh, our interview on the Midday News, the Midday Fix. As we're talking now, although that hasn't happened, it's going to post uh, sooner than this. And so people can go to the website, WGNTV.com, and take a look at our our more brief conversation that we had um, on the Midday News. But anyway, you make it clear in this book that Martin Luther King Jr. was, your words, was a man, not a saint, not a symbol. He chewed his fingernails, shouted at the TV during quiz shows, and hid his cigarettes from the kids, and he even committed plagiarism. He was human. That's right. And I think it's really important that we remember that our heroes don't have to be perfect. And if you want, I want, if I want the reader to believe me uh, when I tell you all these great things about King, I think it's important to be honest and admit that he had flaws too. And King was well aware of his flaws. He talked in his sermons about the fact that um, we, that he lived with great guilt over some of the things that he, you know, the weaknesses, the things that he couldn't control. He was not a perfect husband. He was far from a perfect husband. Um, he drank a little bit. He smoked cigarettes. And for a Baptist preacher, these were, you know, these were serious issues. But um, my point is that um, he achieved things that um, few of us can dream about. And we're never going to even try to achieve things like King achieved if we feel like we have to be perfect to do it. Why is it important that we understand and accept this hero of the civil rights? Why do we have to accept that he was indeed just a man? I mean, I think that's important that we do uh, because he's larger than life to a lot of people. But you kind of you want to make that point that he's human. Exactly, because we don't do him any good by turning him into a saint, by turning him into a monument without forgetting that he struggled, that it wasn't easy for him. If these things came easily, everybody would do them, and they weren't. You know, he risked his life. He suffered from depression. He, he was hospitalized for anxiety. He really you know, had to suffer to, to do what he did, and that just makes him, to me, even a greater hero because um, – you know, he was even the idea that he was uh, that he decided to become the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott and then the leader of the civil rights movement. Uh, he didn't have to do that. And he knew life would have been easier if he'd chosen not to, that he could have stepped aside and let someone else lead. But he was willing to take those sacrifices, even though he knew that his personal foibles, his personal flaws would be used against him. December 5th, 1955. You note that a young black man became one of America's founding fathers. What happened on that day? That was the day that King was asked to serve as the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. The bus boycott was was only day old, and they had to decide whether they were going to keep protesting, whether they were going to stay off of those buses. And there was no sense that this was going to go on for for weeks, months, or years. It was it was a spontaneous thing. And King was really asked to lead, not because he was Martin Luther King, the legendary orator um, or leader. It was because he was new in town, and and he nobody he didn't have too many enemies yet. And they thought he might be someone who could unify the community. And and when he stepped up to the podium that day, most of the people in the audience had never heard him speak before. And that's really the moment that he became Martin Luther King in a way, because he spoke so beautifully. He called upon the Bible and the Constitution to say, we will fight to become true Americans until America gives us a chance to live up to the promises contained in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Just a question about his childhood. I'm looking at my notes and I can't, I can't remember if this is something brilliant you said or brilliant I came up with after I read it. Um, you let me know. But in terms of his childhood, you make the point that King's father beat him. Um, but he never let his father see him cry. He never confronted him or fought back. Here's where I don't know if it's you or me. This seemed to be critical to the style that he eventually lived as a civil rights leader. 
I agree completely. And I think those are your words, okay. not mine, um, <laughs> but they're well-informed. Um, and the thing about King that's so interesting is that he hated confrontation. He hated challenging his father. He would prefer to walk away from an argument. And here he is, arguably our greatest protest leader, a man whose entire career, all of his success is built on confrontation. And it's not in his nature. So he's overcoming his nature. He, he prefers everyone to get along. He prefers to make peace. And yet he forces America to confront its racism by sticking a crowbar into the system and saying, I'm going to push and push on this crowbar until something gives. And to, again, that just is extraordinary to me. And his father was a great example of this because his father really um, pushed him in many ways. And King hated to argue with his father, hated to disappoint his father. Um. It's amazing that King lived as long as he did. I mean, we all know he was assassinated, of course. And I think most people know, oh, yeah, he always had death threats against him. And uh, But specifically, and you write about all these things, his home, his porch was bombed. There was I, this. I did not know about this crazy woman who put a knife in his chest during a book signing where he was smart enough not to sneeze or have it removed because it would have killed him. Another time, a guy named Roy James is at a speech he's giving and he he comes up, punches him. King forgives him and says, let him stay. This is just amazing stuff, but it's also amazing he survived all these things. It, it's amazing not only that he survived, but that he kept getting up and going forward and doing it over and over again without bodyguards, knowing that he was at risk, but believing that as a pacifist, as somebody who was committed to to both the teachings of Jesus and Gandhi, that, that it was not proper to be surrounded by guns, that he allowed himself to go forward knowing that, that there were people out there who, who wanted him dead and that our own government, the FBI in particular, was trying to stoke that anger. Not that they necessarily um, killed him, but they, they they didn't mind if there were people out there who wanted to see King dead and, and they were provoking that kind of animosity. King um, carried on through all of that. And I just don't know how he got up every morning and, and got dressed and went out there and continued to do these things with that kind of, after you've already been stabbed, punched, bombed, shot at, all of that. And how his wife and his father and his mother and all his family members knowing that every day, uh, could easily be his last and their last. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that too, as it ties to his mother and brother. But I found this interesting. What I love about your writing, you bring in things like, even when I read a book like King, where I, I kind of think I know a lot about his life and maybe I know more than, I don't know, the average person, but but then I learned from you and you write about a close competent of his. He was a friend, a speechwriter named Stanley Levison, who was a lawyer and a businessman. But here's what I found fascinating. You quote Levison as saying, that King didn't seem to be the type to be a mass leader. Nothing flamboyant or charismatic about the guy. I mean, was was Levison wrong? No, Levison was right. King was actually, you know, a fairly humble guy. Um, he, he had great swagger. He had great charisma. But he he was he wanted to be a college professor. And I think that had he had the opportunity, if he didn't feel call, called by God to do this work, he would have been very happy with the college life, giving lectures, um, leading prayers, leading his community, certainly in, in, in activism, but not as the, as the guy at the tip of the spear. And I think that's what he was. He was very intellectually curious. I think he would have liked living a life of letters and reading and writing. Um, I think that's what Levison picked up on that, that there was nothing monumental about his ego that demanded that he had to be the center of attention, but he felt like having been called, having been thrust into this role, he couldn't turn it back. I, I think, you know, it's almost where I get the, the sense of the everyday 
person king, you see clips of him on late night talk shows or hanging with Harry Belafonte. Or, I mean, that's when it's really fascinating because this image, it's always the Lincoln Memorial, the mag- magnificent speeches. And then you just see other pictures of him kind of hanging with some people. And apparently he was a pretty funny guy. Yeah, I really hope that this comes across in the book. And I, I, I wish that I could have met him and hung out with him because people said he was just wonderful company, that he would stay up late talking through the night, listening to music, that he told great jokes, uh, that he had a wonderful sense of humor. He liked to preach the funerals for his friends, you know, in a, in a mocking kind of a way, teasing them about what he would say when the time came to preach their funerals. Um, he was just um, a, a really warm, caring guy. And he asked questions. He asked about you. He didn't just talk about himself as, as you know, we sometimes think these these larger than life figures might be inclined to do. If that could have worked, you and I could have just talked about us with him. <laughs> That's what I'm doing now. Right. I don't like it. I don't like it, though. I love it. The, the great journalist, Mike uh, Mike Wallace, who, of course, is Chris Wallace's father, but he once asked King, what happens to a man who becomes owned by a cause as a man? Can you tell us what King said? Yeah, he said that um, you, know, you can't let the cause become bigger than you. You know, you can't let it take over your life. There's a danger there that um, you lose sight of what matters. And King never saw himself as being the center of attention, that he felt like he was, he was the voice, that he was, he was there to bring people together, to, to inspire people. But he never felt like he was, he was bigger than the cause. He also felt like it, you know, he was a great danger to, uh, when, you, when you become the, um, the symbol of the cause. People who are opposed to the cause may think that the best way to, 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 to destroy that cause is to destroy the leader. What I love about the book, too, is you take things we do all know about and we learn about them. Uh, of course, you write a lot about the famous letter from Birmingham jail. I think most people know that letter exists. But uh, what I didn't know is that it got written in part because the jailers, as you write, denied him his right to make a phone call, took his mattress away out of his cell, creating kind of a, a hell cell and to ease his mind. He began to write this letter, which, by the way, was not intended to be for the public in general. He was writing a series of eight Birmingham clergy who were critical of him. That's right. The day that King went into jail, uh, an article appeared in the newspaper published by these clergymen who thought they were progressive racially. um, And they were just saying, Dr. King, you know, be patient. We all care about the causes that you're that you're calling attention to. We all want to see more done uh, for for black people for equality, for justice, but just give us time. We're working on it. And this infuriated King, especially coming from religious people, from people who believed in God, who preached for a living, that they could see that, that for them to say, be patient, wait, we, you know, we'll get around to, to giving you um, justice. Uh, it infuriated him. And really just out of passion, he began writing on, on, on sandwich paper and on toilet paper, on newspaper scraps, mm-hmm. this, what would become, you know, his probably, you know, his, his most famous and, and, and some people would say his best individual essay. He wrote this letter from Birmingham jail that really swept the country. And my kids are still reading it in school today. In some ways, I almost feel like he's the accidental legend. I mean, right. He was doing all these things, whatever being propelled, but it wasn't his mission. Um, he didn't write that letter knowing one day the world that your kids would be reading it uh, in school so many years later. Chapter 21, you call Kennedy to the rescue. Um, and yet it was actually some time before they met uh, in terms of when, when this all begins, when they did. Uh, it was after his address on the mall. And what I love about this, JFK's first words to him were, well, you say it. I have a dream. <laughs> How amazing. Um, he meets King and he looks and goes, I have a dream. 
because uh, King had just given his most famous address and Kennedy was watching it on television. Kennedy, it's worth noting, um, strongly advised King not to come to Washington. He thought the March on Washington was a huge mistake, that if it erupted in violence, it, it would set back the cause, that he would have a harder time convincing Congress to pass legislation. And Kennedy was very much afraid of taking chances on civil rights. And King felt his job was to push Kennedy, to push Kennedy out of his comfort zone. And when that march came off beautifully, and when King then showed up at the White House, you know, moments later, Kennedy had never heard a speaker like that. He had never seen King give a speech like that before. And he was, he was truly moved. And that's why he said he was echoing King, um, letting him know that he'd watched the speech and saying, I have a dream. And, and King's job from that point on was to keep pushing, keep the pressure on Kennedy because Kennedy was reluctant um, as a, as a collaborator, as a partner in the civil rights movement. And King had to keep the pressure on him. That's why he goes to uh, Birmingham. That's why he goes to Selma. It's just keep the pressure on. It's interesting, too, as you write, not only JFK, but LBJ, Johnson as well, both tried to protect King. They were very aware of his importance. And and we learn in the book, here you have the two presidents of the United States, Kennedy followed by Johnson. And while they're trying to protect King, they're up against the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who actually, as time goes on, we learn is tapping King's phone. And listen, J. Edgar Hoover is no role model for anybody, as far as I'm concerned. We learn a lot. 35 years after those days. And actually, as you write, we're still going to learn more in the future about what Edgar J. Edgar Hoover did to him. Right. And it wasn't just Hoover. Hoover is definitely the point man. And he's obsessed with King. At first, he thinks King's a communist. Once it becomes clear that King is not a communist, he becomes obsessed with King's personal life. And he's using this to try to destroy King. He's using this to, to give information to the Kennedys and to Johnson to damage King's reputation, his relationship. He's leaking this material to the press, trying to get the reporters to write a story hoping that, that that Coretta will divorce King when this news comes out and that King's reputation will be shattered. He'll be ineffective as a leader. Uh, J- Why is J. Edgar Hoover doing this? In part, it's because he's a racist. In part, it's because he wants to maintain the white power structure that gives all of the privileges or most of the privileges to, to white Americans, white Christian Americans. And it's in part because he's just a, uh, he's a territorial guy who wants to prove his power and prove his his um, his abilities to the White House. Um, so he's he's constantly out to try to get King, but it's a mistake to blame it all entirely on on Hoover because LBJ in particular is complicit. He's aware of all this spying that's going on on King. He's doing nothing to stop it, and he actually seems to be enjoying getting some of the lascivious details of King's personal life. And by some of the details, I mean, just to be more specific, there were lots of allegations of, of King cheating on his wife and all that kind of thing. And I guess that is just one more piece of the human aspect of the man. Yeah, they were tapping his hotel rooms. They were tapping his phones. And we hear King in one day alone talking to four different women um, on the phone, women he had recently seen or was planning to see again. So it's disturbing. And it's hard to think about one of our great moral leaders having this huge moral flaw. But what's most important about the information on those FBI wiretaps is not King's um, adultery. It's it's the FBI's weaponizing that adultery to try to destroy somebody who's out to try to make us a better, more democratic country. Thank goodness Jager Hoover didn't have anything to hide. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Chicago. The address, 1550 South Hamlin in North Lawndale. Okay, it makes me want to go see it. I Clearly, you have. What, what's there? If, if we, is, that how, is the house still there? What's, what's the 1550? Yeah, the apartment's now? still there. It looks uh-huh. a lot better than it did in 1966. And I think there's a marker in front of the building now saying that 
the kings lived there. They were there several days of the week. King traveled a lot and it wasn't really home, but it was um it was a a home base for the movement as it as it came to Chicago and as King began to try to call attention to what he'd really been saying his whole career that northern segregation was in many ways worse than southern segregation because it was more uh well camouflaged that there were you know terrible housing and and um and educational uh divides that Chicago's public schools were as as segregated as as many of the schools in the south and that uh, that in the north was um, reluctant to admit this, they, it was easy to point out the segregation of the South and and ignore your own in the in your own backyard. So King came to Chicago to try to make a point, but he also offered really concrete changes, he, really concrete policy changes for Chicago about how to improve its its segregated housing, improve its segregated schools. And Chicago and Mayor Daley, in particular, did not want to hear it. They um, they did not seem to really negotiate with him in good faith. They were eager just to get him out of town. By the way, is, does anybody live in the house or is it a historic museum kind of thing now? Uh, no, I believe it's apartments still. I think there are people living in there. Okay. Oh, cool. Like find the one who's living in his in his apartment. Wonder if they know. Uh, you also wrote about that apartment that he, that he wasn't afraid of rats or street gangs. That wasn't his worry. It was about, as you've been talking about, the social and political landscape of the city. And I was going to ask you next about his interactions with Richard J. Daley, uh, because King, as you write, made a series of demands on him. But that's not how you handle a daily, is it? Well, he was warned by folks in Chicago that he didn't understand the politics here. He didn't understand how many people in particular, black people in Chicago, would, would remain loyal to Mayor Daly because their jobs depended on him, because their, um, the, you know, the ward politics uh, would, would, uh, would assure that people wouldn't uh, break with Daly. And King was willing to take that chance. He came here hoping that between the, the preachers and the street organizers and the school protesters, that he would be able to mount a serious challenge to Daly. But um, it's true that, that it was a very different uh, set of uh, obstacles that he faced, that he faced in places like Birmingham, where, you know, you could really focus attention on, on one bad actor like Bull Connor and call the nation's attention and really dramatize. King was very good at dramatizing. Uh, these these inequalities, but it was harder to do in Chicago. Uh, even though he faced some of the worst uh, attacks in Chicago than he that he faced anywhere, you know, he was hit with a with a with a stone or a brick while marching on the West Side. He was um, heckled, and and uh, you know, Nazi flags were unfurled. Cars were you know all by white um, youth in our own beloved city. Um, King left here saying that the people of Chicago could teach the people of Birmingham and Selma a few things about racism. Mm. Was he, this was before my time or your time, uh, so was he as big, I mean, we know him now, when he was here, was he just Martin Luther King Jr. and he was this, you know, equi- I don't know what, I won't make him equivalent to any other name, but how big of a name was he at that time in terms of Chicago's recognizing him? Well, you know, he was a, a huge figure. He was one of the, he was the by far the most um respected black man in america people referred to him as the black president he'd won the nobel prize he'd been on the cover of time magazine he'd been times man of the year in one poll after another uh, through the mid-60s he was rated among the most respected men in america not just the most respected black men uh, but that began to slip a little bit by the mid by the late 60s because in part because of the fbi's determination to tear him down but also because People like Malcolm X, who were more radical, were call it, were criticizing him. Um, other people who were, you know, thought some people thought he was too conservative. Some people thought he was too radical. His popularity began to diminish in the last years of his life, 
Um, but even so, when he came to Chicago, he was a huge deal. He would attract huge crowds everywhere he went. If this this is a question, I'm not sure you can answer. It's speculative. But if Richard Nixon had beaten Kennedy in 60, some would argue, but he did. He did whatever. Um, but if Nixon had beaten Kennedy, history would have been very different. <laughs> uh, to be sure, we can only speculate. Right. Um, Nixon was fairly progressive on racial issues at that time. And um he tried would he have embra- to would he have embraced King. He, he might have. He might have. Uh, he's and later when he was elected president, he did embrace many of King's ideas about guaranteed income, um, about guaranteed jobs, uh, increasing food stamps. King. I mean, Nixon had some progressive ideas. Um, the question is, you know, would he have um, sort of extended a hand to King or not? Uh, because King was willing to work with anybody. So I think that you know, it's 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 it's, it's hard to say, but. Certainly, um, King preferred the candidate Kennedy. He thought Kennedy was more uh, outspoken and more willing to engage on issues of, of of civil rights. I'm always fascinated by those TV shows or books which talk about what if, right? right? What if something had changed in, in history and how just everything that changes afterwards, I guess that might be one of them. The night before King was assassinated, he gave that, again, amazing and very well-remembered speech in which he says to the crowd, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. You know, again, if you were Spielberg writing a movie, you might have written that speech and that line because you knew where the movie was going to go. But at the same time, when he's doing that speech, King didn't know he was a, that I mean, he always knew there were threats on his life. He certainly didn't know he was being assassinated the next day. What a line though. Oh, it's incredible. But King lived, the last few years of his life with that cloud hanging over him, feeling like um, his days may be numbered. And in part, that was because his mission was growing more desperate and more frustrating. And he felt like people weren't as open to listening to him anymore. And the FBI was breathing down his neck, um, literally um, creating conditions that they, that they, that they knew could, could lead to an assassin taking him out. He'd been stabbed. He'd been shot at. He'd been, his house had been bombed. So it was not uh, a great leap of imagination to think that, that his days might be numbered. So there were numbers of speeches that he gave in those last years that sounded as if he were saying, you know, I may not be here long, that uh, we have to make the most of the time we have because our, you know, our, our time could be up at any moment. Do you think he ever suspected that his demise could also be at the result or at the, at the behest of somebody in the government of the, you know, I mean, we, we know of other figures of that time who were killed by police or, or whatever. So he wasn't, I don't know how popular he was amongst that group. Who knows? He, he certainly felt threatened and he knew that the, his own government was, was attacking him, was undermining him, tapping his phones, um, you know, spreading information about him. He had to wake up every morning with the knowledge that this could be the day that a newspaper headline take that a newspaper reporter takes the bait that the FBI had been dangling. The newspapers uh, were getting reports from the FBI all the time about King's personal life and trying to get somebody to crack that story. The reporters wouldn't do it because back then there was a lot more respect for the privacy of public figures. But he still had to wake up every morning with the knowledge that this could be the day that he's exposed for his infidelities and um, his reputation is, de- is forever destroyed. And that living with that kind of cloud over your head, I can't even imagine. I can't either. Uh, and, and let me go back to the, the night of that amazing speech when he says, I may not get there with you because I knew about the speech. I knew the line. I know the speech. What I didn't know from your writing is actually he almost didn't give that speech that night. No, he wasn't feeling well. He wanted to stay back in his hotel room. But you know, one of the things I love about King is that he has a very difficult time saying no to people. Um, but that negotiation- night he, he had Ralph Abernathy. Ralph, go do the speech. 
Right. Al, Ralph was going to go give the speech. Uh, Jesse Jackson went with him and they got there and the crowd was really fired up and it was a, you know, it was a pouring rain and all these people had come in this terrible weather tornado watch. And they went to the phone and said, you got to come <laughs> Dr. King. You know, it's, they, they're, they're not going to be satisfied with, with Ralph Abernathy. They, they want you. And King wasn't feeling well. He was in his pajamas. He was in bed and, he, he got dressed and went over there. He just couldn't say no. He couldn't disappoint. Would Abernathy have given, was the speech going to be the, well, no, that couldn't have been the same speech if Abernathy had given it. No, Abernathy would have given a speech to rally the community to support the striking sanitation workers. Um, Abernathy was a wonderful speaker, um, but he was no MLK. I just have to, at this point, just ask you a general research question, because again, the stories, look, I've written books and, you know, whatever, and I understand research and whatever, but I just... Is any of this fictional? I mean, when you have the dialogue, when you have people saying it, I mean, how 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 accurate are you? What records are you going to? Did you sit and listen to Hoover's tapes? Yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent accurate. It's all in my footnotes. I don't make up a single thing. If there's something in quotation marks, I have a source for it. And uh, we don't have the tapes from Hoover, but we have the transcripts of those tapes. And I've spoken to people who are on the tapes, who are whose names are in the transcripts, and asked them. Are the transcripts accurate? Is this really what you said on the phone with, with Dr. King, people like Andrew Young? And they said, yes, the, the transcripts are accurate. If the FBI is listening to the call and typing up a transcript of a phone call, you can bet that this is what he actually said. So, um, and everything in my, in my book is, is footnoted. Um, you know, you can find out if I said he had 12 cents in his pocket, you go to the back of the book, you'll know how I, found out he had 12 cents in his pocket. Um, so I don't make anything up. I'm you know, old school journalist and, and that's how I've been trained. And I want my readers to know that if it's in there, I've got a, I've got a reason for putting it in there and I can, I can prove it. Yeah. When I said the book is like 600 pages long, I, that was the last page of the, I had, I wasn't even talking about the appendices that yeah, there's a hundred something pages are the of, next hundred plus pages, right. right. That follow it. Um, again, what some people, I didn't know this either until I read it. And this is in the epilogue of the book, but um, of course, King is killed uh, in April of 1968. What I didn't know was his brother, his mother. It wasn't just about him who lost their lives tied to this effort. No, there's a tragic history in this family, much like the Kennedys that we don't really remember. Um, but MLK's brother uh, drowned in a swimming pool. Some people thought it was suicide. Some people th- think it was not an accident that somebody may have killed him. And then his mother was assassinated in the church while she's playing the organ by by a madman who was aiming for for King's father. So really just so sad that this beautiful family of people who'd given their lives to God and to community um, were, were struck by violence over and over again. When you think about those deaths, again, you write about this, you, you quote activist James Farmer, who after the assassination said, I thought this is so powerful, evil, evil societies always destroy their consciences. Talk about that. Well, King really was America's conscience. He, he said, we're not living up to the standards we set for ourselves. We're not living up to the promises contained in the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. We're not living up to the words in the Bible. We can, though, and and I and I want to help. You know, he, he he came about this. He wasn't saying he wasn't. He, he was. He, it's pretty rare that you find a rebel who is not trying to tear down the system. He was asking to join it. He's saying. Just give black people the chance to be a part of this American government, American society. Just treat them the way they deserve to be treated. It's not, it's not hard. And 
we couldn't deal with that. You know, we still can't deal with it. I mean, we still have people saying they don't want to teach black history in American schools. We don't want to acknowledge the fact that this country was built on slavery, that our wealth that we enjoy today is derived from the fact that we enslaved human beings. And if we can't deal with that, and that's what King is saying, that, you know, if, if we can't even discuss that, if we can't deal with that, that's why he was our conscience. He was, he was just, he was speaking the truth and asking us just to listen. But then we have to flip that notion on its head to, to make a point that you make in the book, which again is, is so powerful. You close the book by noting your words in hallowing King, we have hallowed him. I, I, I mean, that, I, did that strike you in the middle of the night one? I mean, just that phrasing. Um, no, it struck me in the middle of typing the sentence a hundred times and trying to come <laughs> up with the best way of saying it. But um, the idea is, is just something that I've lived with and we've all thought about. Many people have said the same thing, that when we created this national holiday for King, we may have done him a huge disservice. It's, he deserves to be honored. He deserves a monument. He deserves a postage stamp. He's, he's worthy of all of the acclaim. But the problem is when we turn someone into a monument, a national holiday, we water down his message. We focus only on the stuff that, that's easy to accept. And, you know, we start teaching him in kindergarten. I have a dream. And we talk about King's dream. We don't talk about the other part of that speech where he called for reparations, where he called, where he criticized police brutality, where he said that government, um, had written black people a, a check that had gone bad. Um, so by how, what I mean by, or hollowing him, I mean is we're simplifying his message and we're just taking the parts that we're comfortable with and we're ignoring the parts that get under our skin that make us realize that we still haven't lived up to his expectations. Maybe if there is a, cons- uh, a kind of consistency between the people you've studied, Ali, King, throw Garrig in there. These are all larger than life figures, but all of whom, when it comes down to Jonathan Igg's writing, all of whom essentially are just human, putting their pants on one leg at a time. And it's almost as though you just want us to know that. That's right. And that's true for all of us. You know, if I were writing your biography. Well, not you, John, you you put your pants on two legs at a time. (laughs) That's right. Um, But it's really important that we try to remember that our heroes are are real people, because otherwise, how can we ever hope to emulate them? How can we hope to inspire the next generation of heroes? You know, it's, you know, you take people like, you know, LeBron James or anybody who you look up to, um, that yes, they're they're doing they're ex- accomplishing extraordinary things. But once upon a time, they had to have been just like you and me, with an idea that they could that they if they worked really hard, they could do something special. And that's what I want to remind folks that, that that you know Martin Luther King Jr. was not always Martin Luther was not always Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. He was Mike King for a long time, and he had to dream big um, back when it was preposterous to think that he could ever be a Nobel Prize winner and a and a national monument and a national holiday. Kind of like knowing Barack Obama when he was Barry. That's right. I had the opportunity to meet Coretta Scott King once. Oh, yeah. And uh, just yeah, an amazing figure, of course. And uh, But th- did you ever meet her? No, I did not, unfortunately. And uh, she was in a wheelchair by, the, by when we met. We were at, I'll be honest, we were at the Barbra Streisand concert together. So that, that's where we met. And, <laughs> that's um, awesome. But there was, this, there was this reverence about her where, you know, just looking at her was was just as amazing. She was very fortunate to survive this entire field, right? I mean, people were knocking off everybody around them, but Coretta prevailed. Yeah, Coretta is one of my great heroes in this journey because in many ways, she led King. She was not just like behind the scenes supporting him. She was more of an activist than he was when they met. 
And that's really, that was really attractive to him that, that she had gone to Antioch College and had really been involved in protest movements there and had experience, you know, marching and organizing. And when they met, King was, um, not sure, didn't know that he was going to be doing that. He thought he wanted to be a preacher. Um, but he was really attracted to the fact that Coretta was so smart and so, um, confident and so courageous and all and beautiful. That came into play too. You talked about that too. Yep. She was beautiful. Um, and, um, talented singer, all of that attracted him. But throughout their marriage, she was, uh, she was frustrated that she couldn't do more that she had to stay home with the kids and that her husband had a very sort of old fashioned, um, idea about what marriage was supposed to look like and what her role should be. But nevertheless, she managed to persevere and to push him. Um, she was calling out, um, she was criticizing the Vietnam War before he was. And I think that he always viewed her as an important advisor and ally and partner in the struggle. You'll have to pop by and see my signed book by Coretta Scott King, which she actually Ooh. signed to Senator Charles Percy, uh, a book that she wrote, and my Bible signed by Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. All here available. You, you live close. Come on by. All right. I'd love to see that. The book is King, A Life by John Ig. It is available as, as when this launches and people can see it. It is available now uh, on Amazon.com and wherever you can get fine books. I hope one day it's required reading in just high schools and other kinds of schools because you give King the good, the bad, the ugly, but it's a, it's a, it's a very accurate portrait that we get. And, uh, John, I just, I congratulate you. I can't wait for Liberace a life, which I predict will, <laughs> I predict will be next. <laughs> the big bestseller. There you go. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> you got it. John Ig, the book is King of Life. It's incredible. Amazon.com. You need to read it. Thanks for joining me, John. Thank you. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from Behind the Curtain.